Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who practices justice is just, just as he is just. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who hits his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God so we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers and sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, 
Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters. Now, some of you this morning might be expecting me to preach on one of Paul's letters, um, but I think it's a terrible thing being typecast. So I thought in the interest of being a wee bit unpredictable this morning, I would take us into uh, John's first letter. Now, I was reading 1 John recently and thinking, how long is it since I heard a sermon on 1 John? When did you last hear a sermon on 1 John? I think it must be 15, 20 years. Um, the funny thing, of course, is that some of the verses from 1 John are so familiar and so well-loved. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And then two verses that we'll focus on this morning, the simple but wonderfully profound, God is love. And then John's conclusion, there is no fear in love. Now, no doubt those verses sound very familiar to you. They were much loved verses in the church that I grew up in. So I thought I'd address the balance and take us into 1 John this morning. Now, the three letters of John were written um, sometime after the fourth gospel, probably in the last decade or two of the first century. The elder John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, is now an old man, and he writes to a Christian community. We're not quite sure where, probably near Ephesus, is an educated guess, but it's a community under some pressure. The small Christian communities around the Roman Empire had always sat in some tension with the empire and their pagan neighbors. They worshiped Jesus as Lord. They refused to pay sacrifice to the emperor. They didn't worship the gods around them, and so they ended up being the object of some suspicion. Towards the end of the first century, actually, they were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper, and the atheists because they refused on the gods. Some persecution had already been coming their way in the 60s in Rome under Nero, and then in Asia Minor in the 90s under Domitian. And by the time 1 John was written, the break from the synagogue had long since um, uh, taken place, where there'd been probably a little bit of legal protection for these, these small communities. Also, these small groups of Jesus followers were not typically very well off. Many of them were slaves. Many of them lived at subsistence level, just about getting by. Add to that the suspicion of the community around them, and you have a picture of a very vulnerable group. And to be a member of that group was not something that you took on lightly. In John 3.13, John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And I think in that sentence, you get an idea of how vulnerable and isolated this group felt. And to cap it all, as we read the letter, we find that there's been a schism. Part of the group is split off. They went out from us, John says in 2.19. 2.26 warns of those who would try to deceive them. And then John assures that those remain, that it's they who are the true anointing, not those that have left. And in 2.27, he says that Christ abides in them as opposed to the other group. Now, we're not sure what the schism has been about, but we do get some clues in the letter, and it seems to be around the person of Christ. Those that left were people who denied the humanity of Christ. Well, the four Gospels, of course, it's John's that seems to emphasize the deity of Christ. But here, John writes, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, which seems to indicate that those that have left 
we're concentrating on the deity of Christ to the exclusion of his humanity. And perhaps that's a very timely message for some strands of Christianity and evangelicalism today. But John is not just concerned about right belief, important though that may be. He's anxious about the way this Christian group is to live. And his words in chapter 3 about living in a sinful way and practicing justice, uh, Philip read it, whoever does not practice justice is not of God, probably reflects the way of life of those that had left. So a view of Christ as being simply divine has divorced them from the realities of life. Quite simply, to coin an old phrase, they become so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. John knows better, however. He's been with Jesus in his ministry. We've seen him with our eyes. We've touched him. We had fellowship with him. I knew him. I was with him when he was tired, when he was hungry. I knew his humanity. And I know what this message of the kingdom is all about. In the midst of the totalizing, coercive, intimidating power of the Roman Empire, in the midst of the economic and the health and the survival struggles of everyday life, in the midst of heartbreaking betrayal of trust and relationships. In the midst of all of that, John, what is this Christianity all about? What is God all, all about? How are we to live? To a hurting and suffering community that felt isolated and exposed, John strips everything away. Back to the basics for these Christians. God is love. God's love has been demonstrated to the point of giving his son for us. And as God loved us, we are to love in the world. <clears throat> now, as we read John's letter, we can't help but notice the fact that he's very aware of two competing ideas of reality. And so in the letter, we get a comparison with light with darkness, lies with truth, justice to injustice, what's transient and passing away to what's eternal, the power of the devil, the power of Jesus, the idolatrous pursuit of desire and possessions with the very life of God and hatred and love. You get all those comparisons. But we are God's children, he says in 3.1. We belong to a different reality. There's something at work in the world which is greater, which is more authentic and stronger than the overbearing might of the Roman Empire and the idolatry and the acquisitiveness of the world around. Greater is the one who is in you, and if Whitney was here, she'd say, greater is the one who is in you all. Because actually it's a, it's a plural. Greater is the one who is in you, amongst you, than he that is in the world. In this seemingly insignificant group of Jesus followers, there is an alternative reality, a witness to the very life of God manifest on earth, stronger, more lasting, more real than all the powers impinging upon them. So John says confidently in 2.8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John sees the reality of the situation behind the struggles and the oppression that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. There is something significant going on amongst this small group of believers, something powerful, something eternal, and is characterized by love. For John, this alternative reality is shot through and through with love. First the love of God and then love for others. God's love for the world, his God's desire to build a new world based on love. We love, says John, because he first loved us. 
So how does John define this love that he talks about? For John, there's only one kind of love, and it's the kind of love that Jesus showed us. He laid down his life for us. And that's love for John. It's laying down a life for the benefit of others. That's the sort of love that's required of us as Jesus followers. It's not a feeling. It doesn't depend on our emotions. Actually, it's a decision to put aside our own desires, our own acquisitiveness, our own selves for somebody else. Now, that's not the way the empire in John's day worked. It's not the way that our empire of Western capitalism works either. Look after number one, acquire, spend, discard, acquire. Make sure nobody takes advantage. Love? Yeah, the Beatles said all you need is love, and then they broke up. But John saw through the vaporware of strutting empire, through the heavenly-minded schismatic opponents, and through the dazzle of desire and possessions, and he saw a reality of a new world growing amongst God's people, through which God's love was being made manifest. And John has a great deal to say about this subject of love, and he's a pretty straight talker. John shoots from the hip, and here's what he says. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And in case there's any doubt, you don't have eternal life. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a sister and brother in need and closes his heart, how does God's love abide in them? Anyone who does not know love does not know God. And then the very stark 420. If anyone says, I love God and hates his sister or brother, they're a liar. Now, John doesn't pussyfoot around, does he? Can you imagine John coming to preach on a Sunday morning? You know, we come, we come, we want to have, uh, we want to be encouraged, we want to be inspired, we have a cup of tea afterwards, a bit of fellowship, and then John gets behind the lectern and he says, listen, if any of you people are not living a life of sacrificial love, do you know what? You're liars, you're murderers, and you're not Christians. So not many lunchtime invitations for John. I wonder, does that, does that make anybody feel a wee bit uncomfortable? Because it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. It reminds me actually of sitting here a couple of months ago when Nicholas Walterstorff was talking about God's greatest size in Matthew 25. And he got us to imagine standing on the right side of the throne and being congratulated by Jesus for giving him something to eat, for visiting him in prison, giving him water, welcoming him, and so on. And as he talked, if you were like me, you began to feel actually just a bit uncomfortable because you began to wonder, do I really belong in this side? Am I going to end up on the right side of things in the end of the day? I think John's challenge is pretty much the same one. Are our lives characterized by love? Our modern world, of course, bandies the word around a lot. We get advertising campaigns, McDonald's, I'm loving it, to the synthetic version you get in Hollywood rom-coms to rock and pop music. There is an aspiration for love, but there's really no clue as to what it's all about. So we get Britney Spears, bombastic love, so fantastic, it's gonna be just like in the movies. Or Lady Gaga's, hold me and love me. Maybe three seconds is enough. Or Kings of Leon, hot as a fever, rattling bones, if it's not forever, if it's just tonight, 
oh, it's still the greatest. Sort of love John's talking about this characteristic of this new community is different. 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. God's costly sacrificial love, a life laid down, well, that's the way that we should live. It's not casual. It's not easy. It means something in terms of our time, our resources, our money. If we're following Jesus, actually these things are not our own. Sometimes we talk about tithing as if it begins and ends there. Do you know the New Testament principle actually isn't tithing? Actually, it's, it's everything. Everything belongs to God. All we have, all we are, and we need to get to the point where we're prepared to look beyond our own interests, our desires, our own wants, and to share what we have with others. And of course, it starts right here, within this community, loving each other, laying our lives down for each other. Respect, being prepared to listen and show interest, considering the other person's point of view, being ready to encourage, wanting to make every interaction such that the person you're interacting with goes away feeling more esteemed at the end of it than they did at the beginning. Holding back the critical word, looking for an opportunity to help or serve, going out of your way to send a text or an email or make a phone call or a tweet. Upholding each other in prayer. Visiting when you hear somebody sick. Surprising somebody with an outrageous piece of generosity. What could you do that you're not doing right now? How creative could you get? Could we outdo one another in showing honor, as Paul says? It starts right here. It doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. There's meant to be an overspill to the whole world from this loving community. John says in 3.1, this is the message we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's the very heart of the Christian gospel, actually. And we can trace it right through Jesus, through Paul, to John at the closing decades of the first century. Let us not live in word or talk, but in deed and truth. These early Christians were known, actually, for their love. Uh, one pagan said of them, behold how they love each other. And that pattern continued over the early centuries of the church's life. In the late fourth century, Martin of Tours was born in what is now Hungary. As a young man, he was conscripted into the Roman army. He once met a beggar seeking, arm, seeking alms. He had, he had no money. He ripped his cloak. He gave the beggar the cloak. And the following night, he dreamed that Christ came to him wearing the half of the cloak, and he decided to follow him. He was baptized, resolved to leave the army because he now felt Christ called him to nonviolence. He ended up in jail. Eventually, he became the Bishop of Tour. But that was a typical story of, of the way Christians lived in these first centuries, a life of costly love. And that's the challenge and the joy to which we are called. And it gets us right to the heart of this story of God's work in the world that we find in the Bible. God pouring out God's love for the world and establishing a community that is characterized by the very love that God has. 
Here is God's surprising, contrary to all right thinking, way of reordering and fixing his world. John's world was dominated by the totalizing power of Rome. And from that age through every age to every, under every power that human beings have devised for themselves or suffered under, this way of life seems unreasonable, it seems unthinkable. But here is the power which actually is beyond all power. Here is the power which destroys the work of the devil, which undoes the power of acquisitive desire and hatred and violence. It's the power of love. As we practice justice, as we love our sisters and brothers, as we open our hearts in need, as we lay down our lives for others, we unleash a transformative power into the world. We witness to and show forth the new light that is shining in the world and demonstrate in faith that in reality the darkness is passing away. There is a new reality in the world. All this is predicated, of course, on God's love. God is love. We love because God first loved us. In the midst of the suffering and the betrayal and the coercive power that John's community experienced, here remains this one constant, this one truth, this foundation and rock. God, God loves you. It brings to mind the words of Paul, doesn't it? If God's for us, who can be against us? To these early Christians, there was a reality that undercut all the difficulties and the pressures of following Jesus in their context. The unshakable, faithful, unswerving love of God. The lives of these Christians was difficult, were difficult, as indeed are the lives of most of the population of our world. Our lives are much more comfortable. But, you know, life has a way of cutting through the comfort and the relative prosperity. Bereavement, sickness, pain, family problems, work problems, all come our way sooner or later. Some of us this morning, I would guess, are going through a time of difficulty, of pressure, which leads to anxiety and fear. Even aside from that, our modern world is a way of feeling, making us feel anxious and fearful and unsettled and inadequate. There's a restless acquisitiveness at work in the world. Walter Brueggemann says this is the predictable result of the ordering of social relationships around insatiable production and consumption. And so our world, he says, suffers from systemic anxiety. And insomuch as we all participate in this insatiable consumption, we all suffer from this to some greater or lesser extent. Once again, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. It doesn't take much imagining to see the systemic anxiety or the anxiety that besets us because of a myriad of problems as being the work of the devil. This is what the Son of God came to destroy. And John says simply, perfect love casts out fear. See, many of us, whenever things go wrong, we end up in anxiety and fear, don't we? Very often what we fear is what might happen. We worry about our children, what might happen to them. We worry about our health, our jobs, a thousand and one things. We who have so much, 
worry about whether we'll have enough, whether our pension funds are going to be big enough, whether we're going to get the next promotion. You know, in such circumstances, fear is just a lie. Listen to John. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. John's talking primarily about the day of judgment, but if we know God's love as a reality in our lives, then John's word resonates for our everyday lives as well. In this new community of God's people, there is a new way of being human, and there is an alternative to the restless acquisitiveness and the anxiety and fear that's endemic to our society. Once we get a sense of the fact that God loves us, that God's for us, that God's at work in our lives no matter what comes our way, we can have confidence. Trust begins to replace fear and anxiety, and God's love casts out fear. Part of this is about hearing the truth of God's word this morning and opening up our spirits afresh to know and experience the fact that he loves us individually. Part of it also is just turning ourselves outwards to love and serve the other. Remember how Martin of Tours began to experience God. It was as he began to love and serve that God appeared to him. And there's no cure for the anxiety and fear that sets us like turning away from ourselves and giving ourselves to others. It's when we do that, the fears and anxieties begin to dissipate and we truly begin to experience love in our own lives. So in conclusion, John's letter encourages us and it challenges us. It encourages us that there is indeed a different way to live than in servitude to desires, possessions, hatred, the systemic anxiety of the age within a group of loving sisters and brothers who together are discovering the transformative power of the Son of God. And he encourages also that in the end, at the bottom, no matter what, God is love. God loves us. God cares for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. God is our father and our mother, and we can face whatever this world throws at us in confidence. And when the time comes, we can face the day of judgment and confidence. But John challenges us too to believe that God really is forming an alternative reality in the world which has more transformative power than any of the violent coercive systems or regimes that exist. And that reality is to be found amongst us as people. And to play our part in living out this new reality, making God's transforming love concrete and tangible in a thousand different ways in our life together and in the overspill to a needy world. And finally, he challenges us to understand that to be a follower of Jesus is not ultimately about what we say we believe, but actually about following Jesus in laying down our lives, in giving sacrificial love, seeing those in need, opening up our hearts and our wallets and our time to them. This morning with us, as with John's community, God loves us, each one of us, individually, completely, unreservedly. And he calls us to lift our heads in that confidence 
and to go out to discover the joy, the release, and the freedom that comes with giving our lives away to others.